Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Last Sunday, I spoke at one of my favorite churches in America, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, in Chino Hills, California. My friend Jack Hibbs is the pastor there, wonderful man. And my sermon was, What is God Like? And it was based on Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, when God says, you want to know what I'm like? Look to the heavens. And I showed a lot of photographs from the Hubble Space Telescope. I showed a uh, short video from Hubble uh, Extreme Deep Field. And this was originally all motivated by a book that I read 25 years ago. Uh, That book uh, really started me on my road toward trying to understand the cosmos and and who's behind the cosmos. The book was called The Creator in the Cosmos, How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God, and it's been updated and expanded by my friend Dr. Hugh Ross, and Dr. Ross is going to be our guest today. But before I get to Dr. Ross, I have to tell you what happened with this sermon. This doesn't often happen to me because I'm not really an evangelist, but I, I gave this sermon, and then I asked uh, Jack Hibbs to do the invitation. Over three services, spoke to about 7,000 people. Over three services, we had 51 salvations. 51 people came forward, not just because of what I said, but because of what Jack said and the Holy Spirit moved. And I think that when you look at the heavens, as God tells us to do, look at the heavens, we can get a sense of what God is like. And when people get a sense of what God is like, the awe of the, of the, of the cosmos reveals the, the awe of God. They are convicted. And that's what Dr. U. Ross does so well. Uh, and as for those of you that don't know, most of you know who Dr. Ross is. He's an astronomer. He's a best-selling author. He travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries and, of course, the timeless truths of Christianity. If you go to his website, reasons.org, it's part of Reasons to Believe, his organization's reasons.org. You're going to see so many resources there. He's dedicated to demonstrating a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies. They're not enemies. You, you, you know who's the enemy of, of science is actually atheism, but that's another topic. But it's always wonderful to have Dr. Ross on the show. You, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. This uh, new update, what's, what's, what's new in the, in the latest version of The Creator in the Cosmos? Well, I talk, I mean, there's 80 pages of new content in the book because of how much has been discovered in the past five years. Uh, we now have a handle on, uh, you know, we've discovered thousands of planets outside the solar system, and those discoveries have told us amazing things about our own solar system that we never knew before. Uh, we actually can now understand what the firstborn stars of the universe look like and how they support the biblical model for creation. Uh, likewise, we've been able to nail down dark matter and dark energy and the primordial magnetic fields. And the reason why I've made this update is to demonstrate the biblical principle that the more we learn about the universe, the more evidence we find for the supernatural handiwork of God. And this fourth edition shows the most dramatic increase of all. 
Well, Dr. Ross, in the book, uh, you talk about 21st century discoveries in addition to the discovery of the 20th century. And as you point out, really, the, the 20th century was really all about uh, how the universe exploded into being out of nothing and how these scientists have discovered this. What, what has been discovered more recently in the 21st century that is applicable uh, to that point? Well, we now know what makes up the universe. I mean, uh, in the 20th century, uh, we were ignorant of 70% of the universe. And so 21st century, uh, we found dark energy, realized it makes it 70% of the total stuff of the universe. We've been able to figure out what the different components of dark matter are and what the geometry of the universe is, the fact that it's flat to four places a decimal. Bottom line is we have far more proof today, scientific proof, that the universe arose from the Big Bang beginning. And it's the Bible that predicted the Big Bang model thousands of years ago. That was part of my conversion experience, reading the Bible in my late teen years and realizing that for thousands of years, the Bible stood alone in claiming that the universe came from a space-time beginning, continuously expanded from that beginning under laws of physics that don't change, or one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And when I read that in my late teens, I said, the Bible is actually predicting that the universe gets colder and colder as it gets older and older in a highly predictable way. And what you see for the first time in this fourth edition is measurements we astronomers have made at the past temperature of the universe, and those measurements perfectly fit the biblically predicted cooling curve for the universe. We'll actually show you that curve and show you 14 measurements astronomers have made, and they're right on. In fact, uh, in Chapter 11, and we're talking to Dr. Hugh Ross, his updated new book, The Creator and the Cosmos, you need to get it. It's the standard work on the topic. Uh, you say this on uh, page, uh, what page are we on here? 123. You say, of all the holy books of the world's religions, only the Bible unambiguously states that time is finite and that time has a beginning, and God created time, that God is capable of cause and effect operations before the time dimension of the universe existed, and that God caused many effects before the time component of our universe existed. Now, what are some of the sections of the Bible to talk about this, Dr. Ross? Well, uh, you've got a couple of places in the Bible where it talks about how God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything. Uh, you got Hebrews 11.3 saying the universe we can detect did not come from that which we can detect. We can detect matter, energy, space, and time. Uh, Genesis 1.1, where it talks about the heavens and the earth. Shemai unarrest in the Hebrews with a definite article. It means the totality of the universe, including space and time itself. I like 2 Timothy 1.9, the grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time. Titus 1-2, the hope we share in Christ, was given to us before the beginning of time. And, you know, when I was in my late teens and looking at the other holy books, they speak about God or God's creating within time that eternally exists. But in the Bible, time is not eternal. Time doesn't exist until God creates the universe, and we got a God active doing other things before the time dimension of the universe even comes into existence. That's a fascinating statement. Uh, the fact that the Bible is the only holy book, supposed holy book, obviously, that uh, 
that states any of this. And it states it, of course, centuries ago, before any of the science has been discovered regarding some of these things. So uh, you can read all about this in Dr. Ross's updated new book, The Creator and the Cosmos, How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God. Um, Now, elsewhere in the book, uh, Dr. Ross, you talk about uh, the fact that uh, the universe is fine-tuned, and we only have about a minute before the break, so we're going to get into it a little bit. But just just explain what fine-tuning is. Well, fine-tuning means that in order for light to conceivably exist, many different features of the universe, our Milky Way galaxy, and our planetary system must fall within extremely narrow ranges of values. And uh, so there's literally hundreds, even thousands of these features of the universe uh, that must be very narrowly defined. And when you add them all up, you wind up with an overwhelming case that the God of the Bible must have designed the universe and all of its components so that light can exist. And I find particularly interesting, you see this in chapter 15 and 17, the fine-tuning evidence goes up dramatically when you go from bacteria to plants and animals, plants and animals to human beings, and most dramatically of all, if you want humans that can come into a redemptive relationship with the creator of the universe. We're going to talk about specific aspects of fine-tuning when we come back, and also some of the objections that the atheists bring up against fine-tuning, even though many atheists will admit this is one of the best arguments for the existence of God out there. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. My guest, Dr. U. Ross, his website, reasons.org, reasons.org. We'll also tell you how you can get a chapter of this book free. We'll be back in two. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're not going to hear this on NPR. We're talking to my friend Dr. Hugh Ross, his updated new book, The Creator and the Cosmos, originally written 25 years ago, but as you mentioned earlier, 80 pages of new information in here because the science is always being updated, further confirming A, there was a beginning, B, there was a fine-tuned beginning, C, the universe is fine-tuned, and uh, many more things about the universe. In fact, uh, I'd like to ask Dr. Ross a few of the parameters of the universe that are fine-tuned. Let's talk about the initial conditions, Dr. Ross, because we know that the initial conditions of the universe were fine-tuned. Even people like Stephen Hawking admitted this. Tell us a a couple of aspects about the initial conditions of our universe that are fine-tuned. Well, usually when physicists talk about the initial conditions of the universe, they're referring to uh, the laws of physics, the forces of physics, and the different constants of physics that must be fine-tuned to make life possible. I mean, for example, unless you have the force of gravity uh, relative to the force of electromagnetism fine-tuned to one part in 10,000 trillion, 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 you either never get stars in the universe or you do get stars, but they instantly form and explode and are gone. If you want the full panoply of stars that are necessary to make physical life possible, it has to be fine-tuned to that incredible degree. And that's not the most spectacular evidence. Dark energy and the cosmic mass density are where we see the most spectacular measurable evidence for fine-tuning design. It's at a level of one part in 10 to the 122nd power. 
And uh, one thing I've done in the book is compare that to the very best example of human engineering fine-tuning design, which in my opinion would be the LIGO Gravity Wave Telescope. But mm -hmm. if you compare the best that we human beings have achieved to what we see just in the dark energy, we recognize that the one that designed dark energy at a minimum has 10 to the 98 times more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more creative, and powerful than we human beings. These numbers don't are sort of incomprehensible for the average layman. I remember reading somewhere, it may have been in one of your books, that the number of atoms in the universe is, is 10 to the 70th power, or 10 to the 79th power, or something like that. So you're talking about fine-tuning for the cosmological constant at one part in, in one with 122 zeros following it. That's um, correct. Yeah. How how do you, how do we make sense of that? Can, is there any analogy we can draw, Hugh, that that helps people understand what that means? Well, the one I've used is that what it demonstrates is that the God that designed dark energy is at least ten trillion 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 times more knowledgeable, more intelligent, smarter than we are, uh, has better funding to that degree than we do, <laughs> more technology than we do. <laughs> And this, I think, is crucial, Frank, because a number of my colleagues who are not theists will say, well, yes, there's got to be a causal agent that brought the universe into existence, but no way is that causal agent a personal being. Mm. Well, I use this fine-tuning argument to point out, look, we're talking intelligence, knowledge, creativity, power, and care for the beings that he creates. These are attributes that only a personal being can possess. I think that I may have read in a, a previous book of yours, I may have used it in a debate with Christopher Hitchens, actually. I seem to remember you giving an illustration once of uh, an aircraft carrier, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you were illustrating how fine-tuned one parameter of the universe was, and you said an aircraft carrier, which is you know, a thousand feet long of steel and uh, I can't remember how many tons, but you said if you were to add one electron to that aircraft carrier, that would be out of tolerance for the fine-tuning parameter you were trying to describe. Do you remember that? Was, is, was yeah, that I your illustration? Why the universe is the way it is. Yeah, unpack and, uh, that better because I didn't say that properly. What, 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 what was that no, no, illustration you, you, you gave? You got it right. And, and okay. it's conservative. Okay. <laughs> yeah, take a 100,000-ton aircraft carrier, add an electron or subtract an electron from it, uh, that's actually uh, less fine-tuning design than we see in the dark energy parameter. Now, how do we so, even yeah, measure something that specifically? One, uh, one with 122 zeros following. How do we even know that's the value, and how could we even measure such a thing? Well... Well, what we do is we do a calculation saying, what if we made a difference by that very tiny amount? What would happen to the universe? Mm -hmm. And what we discover, for example, is it would either expand too rapidly or too slowly at different times throughout the history of the universe uh, to make life possible. We'd also wind up with the wrong elements uh, for life. If you expand the universe too rapidly from the cosmic creation event, all you get is hydrogen and helium throughout the whole history of the universe. And if you expand it too slowly, all you get are uh, elements heavier than iron. Both ways, no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, and no possibility 
for physical life. And if you expand the universe at the wrong rates at the wrong time, you wind up with planets and stars that will not make possible the existence of life or no planets and stars at all. Now, I remember you saying, uh, well, actually, I read this uh, in Hawking. When Hawking said, and, and you, you said this is an underestimate, Hawking said something like, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. Now, Hawking was, was an atheist or turned out to be an atheist ultimately. He may have been a theist when he wrote that. Um, but you said that's an underestimate. But then you also wrote in um, in The Creator and the Cosmos, the book we're talking about today with Dr. U. Ross, you, you, you said that now the cosmological constant deals with the expansion rate of the universe now. So the initial conditions were fine-tuned, and the current conditions of the expansion rate are fine-tuned as well. So all throughout the history of the universe, the expansion rate is fine-tuned, correct? That's correct. It must be, you have to have expanding a little slower at the beginning of the universe than at the current rate. Uh-huh. Yeah, it doesn't change much, but that slight change is critical uh, to get advanced life in the history of the universe. So an atheist cannot make any sort of evolutionary explanation for this because these are initial conditions. At least the initial condition, the initial expansion rate of the universe was put in at the beginning, correct? Yes. So how do atheists deal with this, with the initial conditions? What's their answer to this? Well. The answer they come up with is the multiverse, and they were reluctant to propose that until they had no choice. <laughs> I mean, I've written that in the book, is that when the fine-tuning evidence became utterly overwhelming, that's when they said, well, we can get around that by having an infinite number of universes where they all have different physical features, different initial conditions, for example, and we got an infinite number of them, and we can argue that our universe has all these special features by pure chance. And I point out in the, the Crater in the Cosmos, uh, quoting from Leonard Susskind, himself an atheist, who says, the problem with that appeal is it explains everything. Mm. And a model that explains everything explains nothing. And the example I use is, if you've got an infinite number of universes, where every possible feature is manifested in all these universes, you're going to have an infinite number of planets that have birch trees on them. And you're going to have all kinds of different birch tree species. And we all know that birch trees peel white pieces of bark. Well, on one of those infinite number of planets, you're going to have a species of birch trees that peel 8.5 by 11 inch pieces of uh, square pieces of bark that fall on soil that's got chemicals in it that make random markings on the bits and pieces of paper that duplicate all the equations, paragraphs, and symbols that you see in every research paper published by Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> and so their research papers and their books did not come from their minds. The multiverse did it. <laughs> That's, that takes but a lot you're more... Doing, you're showing that they're being philosophically inconsistent. Right. They're using the multiverse to get rid of God's design, not realizing the same appeal gets, away, gets rid of every conceivable design. And no one believes that. No, so they're really at a loss here. In fact, you quote some, uh, I'm looking at page 177. We're talking to Dr. U. Ross's book, The Creator and the Cosmos. Uh, I've, I've heard uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist, say that a super intellect is monkey with physics as well as chemistry and biology. But he also wrote, I, didn't, I haven't heard him say this, but you, you quote him in here. You say, 
I do not believe that any scientist who examined the evidence would fail to draw the inference that the laws of nuclear physics have been deliberately designed. Did Hoyle ever give a designer then, if he's admitting that? Well, uh, he was never an atheist. Uh, I would describe him as having a Hindu worldview perspective. Uh And he certainly argued that there was some kind of designer behind the universe. He was convinced of that throughout his life. On the other hand, he was very opposed to the Christian faith. Right. So, and then Paul Davies, who I refer to quite a bit in the book Stealing from God, you have him quoted here too. He was, uh, you say he has moved from promoting atheism, and now he's saying there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe, but of course he won't identify who that person is, will he? No, he doesn't. He refers to himself as an agnostic, but what he states is a consensus view. I mean, talk to any astrophysicist, and they'll say, yeah, when you look at the universe, there's this overwhelming evidence for fine-tuning design, but they try to claim in many cases that it's not that some kind of God behind it. They refer to the multiverse, or they'll make some point, well, you know, if we have different kinds of life, you could get different characteristics. I remember when I debated Victor Stenger at Caltech, he said, well, uh, all bets went off if you talk about uh, life that's not physical, a life that's not subject to, uh, to you know, uh, carbon chemistry. And I says, oh, you must be talking about the angels. Yeah, they live in a different realm. But guess what? Their realm was fine-tuned. And he, he, he conceded the point. Hmm. Hey, Dr. Ross, before I forget, and we get to the end of the show and I forget to do this, tell our listeners, A, where they can learn more about you and what you and your team does at, at Reasons.org, and also how they can get a chapter of the book, Creator in the Cosmos. Well, they can get a free chapter of the book uh, by going to Reasons.org slash CC. And that's the chapter that talks about Stephen Hawking and the contributions he made that powerfully established the Christian faith, even though he didn't accept Christianity. And I also had contact with him. I I wrote a tribute about him on my Facebook page. So, yeah, if you want to know about Stephen Hawking, uh, what he wrote uh, that establishes the Christian faith, and his reactions to that, uh, reasons.org slash cc. Reasons.org slash CC. We're talking to Dr. Hugh Ross. His updated book, The Creator in the Cosmos, you need to pick up. It's got all the latest information in it regarding how there is a God behind this universe. And we'll have more with Dr. Ross, including some other atheist objections to this, in just two minutes. Don't go away. Dr. Hugh Ross is my guest today. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. By the way, Dr. Ross and I are part of a larger organization called the Artifact Encounter, or the Artifact Experience, I should say. uh, Artifact.org, I think, is the website, or ArtifactFoundation.org is the website. Check that out, ArtifactFoundation.org. It's an international uh, effort to bring apologetics around the world, and uh, Dr. Ross and myself and Dr. Gary Habermas and several others are involved in this, so uh, check that out. We're we're moving forward with bringing this to other countries, not just the United States, so uh, go to artifactfoundation.org to see more. We're talking to Dr. Ross about the book, The Creator in the Cosmos, and 
We talked a little bit about fine-tuning. Let me, let me throw a few objections at you, you, about this, because I've heard atheists come up with all sorts of different objections. We've already dealt with the multiverse. That's, uh, that's, uh, that, I think that multiplies the need for a creator rather than, uh, rather than reduces the need for a creator, but that's a whole other subject. Let me, let me deal with an objection I've heard uh, cited this way. They'll say, Dr. Ross, when you cite fine-tuned parameters of the universe, that you're, in some sense, handcuffing God, because if God is all-powerful, why couldn't he create life under any conditions? For example, why does he need so many billion years for certain life critical chemo- uh, ke- uh, or life critical elements to form? Why couldn't he just create them immediately? After all, he's all powerful. He certainly could do that, and the Bible tells us he has done that. He's created a different realm uh, with different physical features for the angels. So this isn't the only realm that God has created. And you say why the billions of years? Because what we see in the Bible is that God designed the universe first and foremost for the purpose of redemption. His goal is to have humans within the universe that can come into a redemptive relationship with him. And so the whole universe was created with sin and evil in mind and the redemption of humanity from sin and evil, and that's why you have gravity, that's why you have electromagnetism, that's why you have thermodynamics. And what you notice in the last two chapters of the Bible Once evil and suffering have been permanently eradicated, no longer do we have uh, thermodynamics, gravity, or electromagnetism, and we have different space-time dimensions. All of that is here in this universe for the purpose of being a powerful tool in God's hand for the rapid, efficient elimination of evil and suffering. And with gravity and thermodynamics and electromagnetism, you're going to need those billions of years. But what's interesting, those billions of years are fine-tuned. If the universe were any younger than 13.8 billion years or older than 13.8 billion years, you wouldn't have humans or human civilization. In fact, in another book uh, called Improbable Planet, I documented how the fine-tuning shows that the window of time in which we can live in a civilized state 10,000 years wide only. We're living in an extremely narrow time window of the universe when it's possible for billions of us humans to live in a civilized state. And that's crucial so that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ can be communicated quickly uh, to billions of humans and have many billions come into a loving relationship with their Creator. So that's something I put in the Creator and the Cosmos as well as the Improbable Planet. All of this fine-tuning design you see, ultimately, it's for the purpose of bringing billions of people into an eternal, loving relationship with the Creator. That's why you've got thermodynamics. That's why you've got the 13.8 billion years. That's why you've got 50 billion trillion stars. It must be exactly that way for a redemption to be possible. Well, but I, I guess I'm still not making the connection. Why couldn't God instantaneously create a universe, uh, and all the necessary factors for life and start without all that and, and have a, a, a situation of redemption? Why does he need um, well, all yeah, these? He could do all that, Frank, mm-hmm. uh, if you, you know, dispense with uh, thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. In that case, you could have the universe show up instantly. But now you would lack the tools that God intends to use to restrain the expression of human evil. 
I mean, would you notice in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God says, from now on, in proportion to your evil, you're going to experience more pain, more work, and you're going to waste more time. And uh, none of us like those things, and so that actually acts as a motivation to move us away from evil towards following God's virtuous path. And the reason why you get more pain, um, more wasted time, and more work is because of the laws of physics. And because of those laws of physics, the universe must be a certain size, a certain age, with a certain history. It all must be fine-tuned. So are you suggesting then that because of uh, the laws of physics and and the fact that things run down, that in one, I, I guess one thing that certainly seems obvious to me is that's one way God controls evil. People run down. I mean, imagine if Hitler didn't die. <laughs> you exactly. Know? That would, I guess that would be one aspect of it. But you unpack more of that in the, in the previous book, not the Creator in the Cosmos. Is that right? I unpack that in the book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. But I think right. one easy way late people can understand it is because of uh, thermodynamics, everything decays. And because of the way decay is fine-tuned, or it decays at exactly the right rate, mm-hmm. that means that when I commit sin, I have to work harder to undo the damage of my sin because of the laws of thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism. Those laws guarantee uh, that the more sin I commit, uh, the more chaos I'm going to create because of those laws, and the more work and pain I'm going to experience to undo the damage of what I've committed at my hand. Hmm. Now, this I don't want to go too far down this road, but I know people are thinking about it, because you have another book on this subject as well regarding the the age of the universe, and, and that's a contention among some Christians. Uh, but in your opinion, what does Genesis 1 say about the age of the universe? How do you interpret Genesis 1? Well, I didn't meet Christians until I was uh, in my late 20s. Uh, to get to know them, but I picked up the Bible at age 17, and uh, there were these creation days. And I said, I wonder what these days are. And what I realized right away is that the word day in the original language must have at least three distinct definitions, because three are used right there in the text. Creation day one, it's contrasting days and nights, so it's a day referring to daylight hours. Creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's a day for 24 hours, and Genesis 2-4 uses the word day to refer to the entire creation history. Mm. So that's a day is a long period of time. Mm. And I also noted at age 17, the first six creation days have a definite start point and a definite end point. They're bracketed by an evening and a morning, but there is no evening and morning for the seventh day. Mm. I said, wow, it looks like the seventh day, we're still in it. And as I continue to read through the Bible, I found three texts, Psalm 95, John 5, and Hebrews 4, that tell us we're still in God's seventh day. And Frank, that was a huge breakthrough for me as a 17-year-old, because when I was 10 and a half, my parents bought me this book on evolutionary biology. I read it, and I said, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. We have all the speciation before humanity, and hardly any afterwards. Can you tell me why? They said, go ask your science teachers. My science teachers told me to go to university, 
and talked to the professors there. They didn't have an answer. But when I picked up Genesis 1, the answer leapt off the page. For six days God creates. On the seventh day, he ceases, he stops. That's why we see speciation before humanity. Those are the six days that God is creating. The reason we don't see it in the human era, that's the time when God has stopped his work of creating to focus on his work of redemption. Now, clearly, as you point out in Genesis 2-4, when he, re- when he uses, or when Moses uses the word day in Genesis 2-4, he's referring to the entire six-day creation period, as you said. So, in your view, then, each of the individual days of Genesis 1, are they long periods of time? Are they 24 hours bracketed by uh, uh, gaps? Or What's your view of that? There, there's six consecutive long periods of time. I mean, okay. after all, we're still in the seventh day, so that's right. got to be a long time period. Right. And also, you notice uh, we have both the human male and the human female created on the sixth day. But in Genesis 2, you've got a significant passage of time between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. And when Adam sees Eve, he says in the Hebrew, Hapaham, meaning at long last. So if the sixth day is a long period of time and the seventh day is a long period of time, the grammar of Genesis 1 tells me all the days are long periods of time. So, so what do you do with someone who says, well, elsewhere in the Bible, he says that our, that our work week is oriented around six days of work and then one day of rest. What would you say to that? Well, I would tell them there are 66 books in the Bible. You need to read through the entire Bible and see everything it's got to say on that subject. Mm-hmm. And uh, the quote is from Exodus 20, but if you go to right. Leviticus, you'll see a text where it talks about the Sabbath rest for the agricultural land. Mm-hmm. And the agricultural land is to be worked for six years and given a Sabbath rest of one year. And that's because of the way God designed the biology of the agricultural land. It makes sense. That's how you stop the nematodes from getting out of control. We human beings, because of our biological limitations, we perform best with a six-day work week and a day of rest. God has no biological limitations, so he could have any period of time as his period of rest. But the fact is, we do see multiple Sabbath periods throughout the Bible. And so when when someone who believes in a young earth view will say, well, each day begins with with morning and evening, doesn't that imply 24 hours? What would you say to that? we only got about a minute left. Yeah, I'd say look at all the texts in the Bible that talk about evening and morning, mm-hmm. and uh, what you discover is the only place in the Bible where you got evening and morning in the same sentence attached to the word day is Genesis 1, and all those other texts are referring to human history, not natural history. It's apples and oranges. We're talking to Dr. Hugh Ross. His updated book, The Creator in the Cosmos, is a classic. The subtitle is How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God. There's 80 new pages in this new edition, so you need to pick up the copy of The Creator in the Cosmos. You can get a a free chapter, if you want, by going to reasons.org forward slash cc for Creator in the Cosmos. Uh, And if you want to take a look at it that way, you can just go to Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. The Creator in the Cosmos, and we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Ross again on some more issues related to this book, 
uh, and uh, maybe some more objections to see how he responds. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just two minutes, so don't go away. You know, whenever I teach on uh, the fine-tuning of the universe, I often refer to the fact that we're in the Goldilocks zone, that our solar system and our planet, I should say, is is in a, a zone that if we were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We're what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right, the audience always says. Of course, if they're in Minnesota, I say, no, it's not just right. It's too cold here in the winter. And if they say, if we're in Florida, I say, no, it's too hot here in the summer. But you get the idea. But I did not realize there's not just one Goldilocks zone. There's about nine of them. And Dr. Ross unpacks these Goldilocks zones in The Creator in the Cosmos, or the book we're talking about today. Dr. Ross, what are those zones? Well, the one everybody talks about is the liquid water habitable zone. Mm -hmm. Uh, How close you need to be to your uh, host star in order to have a temperature on the surface of your planet where liquid water could conceivably exist. And actually, that liquid water habitable zone is extremely narrow if you want the water to exist for more than a billion years. And if you want advanced life, you need to have it existing uh, for at least a billion years. And so there it's fine-tuned to within 0.5%. But another habitable zone is called the ultraviolet habitable zone. You need a minimum amount of ultraviolet radiation coming on the surface of your planet in order to make certain critical biochemical reactions run. But too much ultraviolet radiation kills the life. It must be fine-tuned. But for the vast majority of stars, the ultraviolet habitable zone does not overlap the liquid water habitable zone. For a planet to be truly habitable, it must simultaneously reside in the liquid water habitable zone and the ultraviolet habitable zone. Uh, Several other zones are the photosynthetic habitable zone, the zone where photosynthetic life is possible, the tropospheric ozone habitable zone, You've got what's called the planet uh, rotation habitable zone, uh, the planet rotation axis tilt, the tidal habitable zone, the astrosphere. That refers to the atmosphere of the star, and uh, if it is uh, too strong uh, or too weak, you're going to get a radiation problem that will eliminate life. And the latest one that's been discovered, the ninth one, is the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. How, for example, Venus, as an atmospheric electric field that guarantees that any water on its planet will be immediately desiccated. And so, yet that's, and for a planet to be, be habitable, it must simultaneously reside in all nine habitable zones. Hmm. Now, we have found over 3,700 planets uh, on orbiting stars in our galaxy and found a few planets orbiting stars in other galaxies. But of all these planets we've discovered, there's only one that simultaneously resides in all nine habitable zones. And I'll leave it to the listeners to guess which planet that is. <laughs> yeah, look around. Uh, right. So, so is it I, – I, there was a book years ago, I have it on my shelf here, called Rare Earth, where even though the authors, I believe, were atheists, they said – 
there's probably not life on any other planet. I mean, there are a number, the number of stars out there are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the Earth. Those are the stars. Some of them have planets. Is it still the case, Dr. Ross, that scientists are suggesting that life isn't on any other planet despite that volume of stars? Well, there's a recognition. Now, rare Earth is basically making the point bacteria maybe, but uh, advanced life, no. Uh-huh. And now there's a growing recognition that we even have a problem with the bacteria. Although when you see NASA talking about there's 40 billion habitable planets uh, in our uh, galaxy alone, they're referring to the possibility of having a primitive bacterium survive on a planet uh, for a period of three months. Make it longer than that, or make if you want a planet with more than one species of bacterium, then suddenly the number drops way, way down. And that's something I've put in the crater in the cosmos. You'll find a table there where I list the different kinds of life and how rapidly uh, the number drops down. And uh, for humans, uh, or the equivalent of humans, the probability of finding anybody anywhere in the universe uh, with the possibility of sustaining us without invoking divine miraculous interventions, less than one chance in ten to the 1,050th uh, power. And that's assuming you've got 100 uh, billion trillion planets in the universe. Even with that very large number, the probability is still less than one part in the 1,050th uh, to 1,050th power. I'll tell you what excites me, uh, Frank, is yeah. now that we found all these planets, what we're now realizing is that for life to be possible here on planet Earth, not only must our planet be fine-tuned, Jupiter has to be fine-tuned, mm-hmm. Venus has to be fine-tuned. We now know that every one of the eight planets in our solar system must be exactly the way they are for advanced life to be possible here on planet Earth. And as we look at these 3,700-plus planets we discovered, none of them are twins of any of the planets in our solar system. We thought, we astronomers thought we'd find all kinds of analogs uh, to our solar system planets. So far, we haven't found a single one. And when, when you're given that calculation on the fact that life is probably not anywhere in the universe, that's just dealing with the necessary conditions for life, not the sufficient conditions. In other words, they're just saying that life might be able to survive, but they're not saying how life could have been created to begin with, correct? That's correct, and and, and discovery I talk about in the crater in the cosmos is how, you know, we now know that life originated on planet Earth as early as the laws of physics would permit, Mm -hmm. and it arose instantaneously, which is what caused people to say, wow, it must be an easy step. Look how early it happened. Look how fast it happened. But a number of astronomers have pointed out, unless life originated on planet Earth as early as the laws of physics would permit, and unless it happened instantaneously, you wouldn't have sufficient time to get human beings. So if you mm-hmm. want human beings on a planet, the first life must originate as early as the laws of physics would permit. And you it mean must for, be an instantaneous event. You mean for a food chain and, and the support of, of, a, of a human being? Well, in Is order that the to reason? get the resources, to, to get the oxygen, uh, uh-huh. to get the uh, metals, okay. uh, to get the soil conditioning, uh, to make our existence possible, yeah, you need that amount of time just to get the resources. Okay, two other quick things. One is, 
I mean, yeah, there's life here on Earth, but nearly all the universe is hostile to life. So isn't that an argument against a designer? It would be against a designer if you're talking about a designer who wanted multiple uh, sites for life. But given that God's purpose for creating the universe was not just to make a home for humans, but to make possible the redemption from sin and evil, now we recognize, yes, the whole universe must be exactly the way it is for that redemptive purpose to be possible. And so I tell my friends who are not yet Christians, who are astronomers, I say, don't just look for the fine-tuned design. Ask yourself, what's the purpose of that design? And this is how you can open up a spiritual conversation. Mm. Yeah, also, I like to give an illustration that if you're walking in the desert, uh, a vast desert, miles and miles across, and you find an iPhone in the sand, um, to say, well, most of this desert is just sand, that does not explain why there's an iPhone there. You still have to have a designer for that iPhone, <laughs> even Based if... it's made of the silicon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, there's, it still shows there's a designer, even if the whole rest of the desert has no design to it. So they're, they're, they're looking at the wrong thing when atheists bring up that objection. But we just got a couple of minutes. I want you to talk about exoplanets, because you talk about them as well. What, what are they about? Well, exoplanets are planets that we discovered orbiting other stars. And yeah, you can go to exoplanets uh, uh, on the Internet, and you'll see a catalog there that lists all their characteristics. And uh, as I mentioned before, uh, none of these planets have the characteristics of any of our solar system planets. And it was that discovery that caused astronomers to say, wait a minute, maybe there's something special, not just about Earth, but about Mercury, about Venus, about Mars. And that led to the recognition all eight planets must be their sizes and their orbits exactly the way they are for advanced life to be possible on Earth. So I don't know about your family, Frank, but when we celebrate Thanksgiving, mm. we thank God not only for the Earth, but for Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, <laughs> Jupiter. We name them all because we realize there'd be no turkey on the table unless those planets were exactly the way they were. And also we now know the five asteroid and comet belts we have, they're mm -hmm. unique. We don't see asteroid and comet belts like that anywhere else in our galaxy, and they must be exactly that way for advanced flight to be possible. So, yeah, our family also thanks God for the Kuiper belt, uh, for the uh, main belt of asteroids, the scattered belt, and the Earth cloud. Wow. Well, your prayer is out of this world, I'm telling you. You're... <laughs> You're, Literally. <laughs> you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're thanking for everything. I, I do understand the, the purpose of Jupiter and Saturn with their gravitational fields. What, what would be uh, the, the, the purpose of, say, Mars, briefly? What, what does it do well, for Mars, us? Mars, because of its size and its orbit, breaks up the mean motion resonances. Because you've got these orbits uh, going around the sun, mm -hmm. uh, but if the orbit of one planet has an exact integer relationship with the orbit of another planet, that causes a gravitational disturbance to ripple throughout the planetary system. Mm -hmm. But the orbits and the sizes of Mars, Venus, and Mercury break up those resonances that are generated by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So, yeah, we not only need the big boys to protect us from getting too many hits from asteroids and comets, we also need the little planets to break up those resonances. Wow. Well, you, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure, Frank. This is uh, Dr. U. Ross, and again, the updated book, The Creator in the Cosmos, with 80 new pages you need to get if you want to take a sample of it. 
you can uh, get a sample chapter uh, by going to reasons.org. That's Dr. Ross's website, forward slash CC for Creator and Cosmos. And uh, you can uh, read that chapter there. Once you read that chapter on Stephen Hawking, you want to get the rest of the book. So do it. Uh, So it's always great having Dr. Ross on. He's doing some great groundbreaking work on the... on the cosmos. It's great stuff. And if you want to see that message I gave where 51 people uh, got saved, not, not just through me, but through other folks, go to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and look at media. You'll see it there. See you next time, friends. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.